You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Well, you know, I was planning to start this off by saying, uh, let's just, you know, reminisce and uh, admit that we miss so much that wonderful buffet and the hot chocolate and the view that we could see at the club when we would gather these past years for this event. But you know, um, I'm noticing in myself that I'm just so grateful that we are here at all and that we are here safely that um, it's sort of overriding my nostalgia for the good old days. It's just wonderful to see you. Uh, Christ in the Christmas Crunch is a title, I think, dubbed by Heidi Kenner, a former minister on our clergy staff. If I'm wrong, correct me later. Um, And this tradition was started a number of years ago. And I think this title, Christ in the Christmas Crunch, is a bit of an insider phrase for us at the Advent. Um, You know, it's like during the announcements when you'll hear the class will be held in the refectory. Uh, Okay, I'm clear now. Or when we read in the Adventurer, the senior high will have family dinners this Sunday at Cramner House. Family dinners? I wanted to get rid of my teenager for a little while. Um, Zach told me that when they first came to the Advent and the time rolled around where he started hearing the announcements about the annual Christ and the Christmas crunch for all women of the Advent, he said he pictured us women gathering around tables, filling baggies with granola and putting a little baby Jesus on top that we would then distribute to the homeless. (laughs) I guess it makes a certain kind of sense and crunch if you're from California, okay. Um, So what this really is, to remind us veterans and to explain to those of you or who are attending your first Christ in the Christmas Crunch, This insider title is a reference to keeping Christ as the focus of Christmas as we anxious Martha Stewarts work relentlessly each year to make it about other things. You know, things like sending cards, decorating, entertaining, gift purchasing, gift wrapping. I think you get it. And you know what, I have to just, you young mothers, you really did a number to yourself when you added that insidious elf on a shelf. What were you thinking? It wasn't crazy enough. Um, For many of us, this annual gathering, this Christ in the Christmas Crunch, it really is a respite from the hustle and the bustle of the holiday season or Perhaps it has been a place of encouragement for those of us not feeling any joy at the moment. Even if it had been momentary, we got our hearts reset for Jesus' arrival and not Santa's. In this strange pandemic-ridden year, 
it might be better to title this Christ in the Christmas Confusion. Because what in the world would this Christmas actually look like this year? Will there even be a crunch? Do we even get to be Martha Stewart this year? Though I have no doubt, Lord help us, we will certainly try. Um, But we know that it certainly will not be normal. I don't know about you, but Thanksgiving just taught me that. But we can be sure the Christmas will come. You cannot stop the incarnation of the Son of Man any more than we can stop him from coming a second time. And I am so grateful for it. I will confess that for some years of my early adulthood, I chose to whittle the unfathomable miracle of the incarnation down to a more decipherable event. Uh, You know, why, for example, why get bogged down in the virginity of Mary? Isn't it just enough to know that Jesus was born? Does purity really matter? Were there angels really involved in all of this? I mean, maybe we should just go with the understanding that these simple, primitive folks thought they saw and dreamed about angels. I am ashamed to tell you this. It shows such an ignorance of the Bible on my part and such an arrogance of me in that I thought I could tame the incarnation to fit my comfort level. Lord, forgive me. And he did forgive me. And in his infinite mercy, he has wrestled with me ever since to an entirely different view of this miracle and for all of his word. And honestly, I can't get enough of it, of this incarnation. I look forward to spending whatever remaining years I have left on this earth marveling at and being confounded by the conception and birth of our Lord Jesus. Tim Keller writes, the incarnation is the universe sundering, history altering, life transforming, paradigm shattering event of history. And I say, you know, Tim, that's right, but you still haven't done it full justice. Uh, What happened in that historical moment was that the infinite, all-powerful, glorious creator of the universe who dwells outside of time and history set aside his glory to enter into our lives and save us from sin. Philippians 2, 7 says, But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. The second person of the Holy Trinity, out of love, pure, divine love only, poured himself into a human embryo so that he could be born a baby, grow up a man, and teach us about love. And then on the cross, he would show us that profound love by taking on all our sin 
And in his dying for us, he defeated death for us. We are forever not the same people. So why Joseph this year? The title of this is Joseph, Champion of Infant Jesus. Well, I'll tell you. I have had a long-standing appreciation for Jesus's earthly father, Joseph. It began when I became a step-parent 31 and a half years ago. As my fellow step-parents will understand, this is not a role, even in the happiest of circumstances, we would choose, or maybe what we should say is we would never anticipate You know, when I was a little girl playing with my dolls, I never pretended to be their stepmom. We are step-parents because of a divorce or death. And while Joseph's situation did not exactly involve either, in another way, yes, they did. Joseph came to the painful decision to divorce Mary, remember? He had made up his mind And when he had been persuaded otherwise by an angel, Joseph, no doubt, experienced a death to all his previous expectations and hope he had for his new life with Mary before she had gotten pregnant with a child that was not his. So Joseph has been my step-parent role model. In no way have I ever been as faithful or as obedient as Joseph, but he teaches us much about caring for children who are not ours biologically. Today I would like to honor this humble man because he played such a vital role in saving the life of the unborn and then the born Jesus. I'll begin by taking an inventory of what we do know about Joseph And compared to other characters in the scripture, it's not that much. Let's just say that Joseph's name would never make it onto the theater marquee. He doesn't have a starring role. Joseph's story is told to us in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke. He is obliquely referenced one time in Mark 6.3, when his fellow Nazarenes ask if Jesus is not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon. And Jesus was a carpenter, we know, having learned the trade from Joseph. In John's gospel, there is no mention of Joseph. And think about it, there is not one single biblical recounting of Joseph actually addressing Jesus. We know that they must have had plenty of interaction as Jesus grew up under Joseph's care and in his home, but our scripture just does not tell us about any of that. There is evidence, and I think it's pervasive, persuasive, that Joseph died before Jesus's ministry even began. But again, we are not told how or when. This evidence includes the fact that when Jesus is presented in the temple at 40 days old, Simeon addresses only Mary when he predicts a sword will pierce her soul, surely a foreshadowing of the crucifixion. 
Luke has just told us that Jesus' parents, Mary and Joseph, had brought him to Jerusalem for this presentation, and Mary and Joseph both had marveled at Simeon's recognition of their infant. But only Mary is told that this child, who will grow up and do amazing things, that his life will pierce her soul like a sword. I'm thinking that's maybe because Simeon knew Joseph wouldn't be at the crucifixion. Other evidence is that Mary was alone with Jesus at the wedding in Cana when he performed his first miracle. And Mark, Matthew, and Luke tell us, as mentioned above, that it is Mary and Jesus' siblings who try to have contact with him when he is teaching in his hometown. Only in Luke 4.22 is Jesus referenced in relation to Joseph. Is not this Joseph's son, the crowd asked. And then the final piece of evidence um, that while dying on the cross, Jesus, as we all know, gives his mother Mary to his beloved disciple John. And this would have been the loving responsibility of an oldest son to his widowed mother to ensure provision for her for the remainder of her life. All right, so let's zoom into the accounts of Joseph that we do have in Matthew and Luke. Matthew, so careful to show his fellow Jews that Jesus is the Messiah promised throughout the Old Testament, he gives his readers a genealogy, as you know, that traces Joseph all the way back to Abraham and highlights that um, Joseph is in the house of David. 2 Samuel 16 says when, the Lord is speak- says, when the Lord is speaking to King David through Aaron, he, he says, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. If Jesus had arrived among these Jewish people from any other lineage, he likely would have been disqualified from the beginning as being the Messiah. By merely being who he is, Joseph, as Matthew describes him in the conclusion of his genealogy, Joseph, the son of Jacob, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is the Christ. This Joseph gave our Lord the bloodline of the Messiah. And without simplifying the nativity narratives too much, one can see that Matthew tells us Joseph's story while Luke is focused more on Mary's. And we need them both. Matthew tells us that Mary was betrothed to Joseph and before they were married and sexually united, she was found to be with child. And side note here, in those days, that must mean that she was starting to show. There's no home pregnancy test back then. Her condition would not have been a secret. Betrothal in that time was legal, a legal binding contract 
that required a legal divorce to break and the contract was made before the couple were actually married and living together. These arrangements were mostly managed by the parents of the couple-to-be. Adultery was, and you have to remember this was a shame-honor society, um, this adultery was punishable by stoning, eviction from the community, or at the least, the very least, a divorce. Now here's when we learn from Matthew that Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put Mary to shame, resolves to divorce her quietly. Let's stop a minute and reflect on Joseph's state of mind in this terrible moment. He has just learned that he has been betrayed by his betrothed, and he must behave like a faithful Jew and follow the law. Joseph's tender heart cannot imagine Mary's death, which stoning would surely cause and eviction would likely cause, so he chooses the least of the prescribed punishments to remain faithful to the law, knowing that he is about to be the enigma of his village for a long time. Why didn't you stone her, Joseph? At least kick her out. She did a shameful thing to you and your family. And then occurred the first in a series of real dreams with real angels given to Joseph. It was so authoritative that Joseph obeys and takes Mary as his wife. Why was this rather bizarre exchange in a dream so convincing to Joseph? Why did he not just pass it off as something he had eaten the night before? Joseph knew the Jewish scripture. He knew Isaiah's prophecy in 7.14, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. And this was exactly what the angel had told Joseph in his dream down to what the name of this unborn child of Mary's would be. Joseph knew that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. The angel's message to his ear did not sound so completely crazy. Joseph also knew about the Joseph of the Old Testament, the Joseph who literally kept himself alive because he could interpret dreams. Joseph knew that God can, and occasionally does, work through dreams. And as to this child's name, both Joseph and Mary are told by angels, it's Gabriel that tells Mary, to name him Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. I think it's fun just to consider the first time this couple broached the question of naming the baby. It's always a big conversation. Um, and they both were burdened by knowing that they had to, they had to uh, get the name chosen because they'd been told by angels, um, only to discover that they have been given the same name, both from angels and neither their own ideas. 
I have to think if I were Joseph in that moment, that would really feel like affirmation. Maybe I really am supposed to be doing this. Maybe I am not a fool. Joseph's obedience in marrying Mary, someone like choosing only to divorce her, was going to bring on a lifetime of social shunning in their small community. The only way to humanly understand their situation, Mary's and Joseph's, was to decide that Joseph had had sex with Mary before their marriage, making him a lawbreaker, a sinner, or that he was so truly gullible and weak, he had agreed to financially support and give his family's name to another man's child. I think we modern people, modern day people, we can kind of lose sight of the courage it took for Joseph to yoke himself to Mary and her unborn baby. People were going to talk about them for a long, long time. Oh, and can you imagine Joseph trying to explain himself? You know, no, Dad, really, Dad. An angel told me in a dream that Mary conceived by the Holy Spirit. I got this. I know what I'm doing, really. Matthew and Luke both make sure their readers understand that Jesus was born in Bethlehem and why. The worldly explanation is because of Joseph's Davidic lineage, and Jesus is about to be born in a census year. The holy couple must travel to Bethlehem to be counted. And the godly explanation, the Old Testament scripture, had foretold that Bethlehem is where the Messiah will be born. Micah 5.2 says, But you, O Bethlehem, who were too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, the ancient days. And so here we are, arrived at the stable or the cave, a place where animals shelter, and Jesus was born. There is no biblical account of any other person being present, no kindly wife of the innkeeper who delivers the baby while Joseph paces outside. Joseph most definitely delivered Jesus. He would have known at least the basics, being of an agricultural people who watched over livestock giving birth each season. The unborn Messiah, who had been legitimized and kept safe by Joseph, is now in his bloody hands the born Messiah. Our man of this hour had a few more important things to do to keep baby Jesus and his mother safe and provided for. Have you ever wondered why Mary and Joseph were still in Jerusalem living in a house when about a couple of years later the wise men arrived? 
I mean, they went to Bethlehem to, to get counted. Their home was in Galilee. Mary's mother was in Galilee. I'm going to do exactly what Mark Genelette tells us we shouldn't do, and I'm going to speculate. Um, but I, I'm, it's speculation. I think, well, you know, number one, Joseph had to feed his family. I imagine he immediately got some sort of work so he could afford more suitable housing and food while Mary recovered. Perhaps Mary and Joseph liked their anonymity, living in a town that did not perceive them as tainted, shameful. I mean, this is really the beginning of their marriage. In this mere speculation, there is, of course, deeper in it, the truth of God's sure and perfect plan for our salvation. The Holy Family needed to remain in Bethlehem until the wise men could find them. After this visit of the wise men, with the expensive gifts delivered, I've heard jokes about, you know, if it had been wise women, they would have brought casseroles and they would have cleaned up, they would have cleaned up the house and um, changed the baby. Well, that's not what happened. Uh, so the wise men, their expensive gifts delivered. Herod goes, you know that Herod next, goes on the warpath upon realizing the wise men are not returning to him with the identity of the newborn king of the Jews. Joseph has his second dream and is told he must take his wife and toddler son and flee to Egypt. They leave in the night, starting a 90-mile journey that will conclude with them as refugees in a foreign land. But they are safe, safe unlike all the other baby boys age two or younger in Bethlehem. We aren't told what Mary and Joseph do or how they live while they are in Egypt, but obviously they survived. Perhaps those expensive gifts supported them. But there I go, speculating again. Joseph's third dream has him returning his family to Israel with the death of Herod the Great, who had caused the massacre of the innocents. But Joseph does not want to go to Judea, which is the region Bethlehem is in, because Herod's most vicious and ruthless son was reigning in that region. So Joseph has a fourth dream, which tells him to return to Nazareth, a tiny town full of people of low estate. The Holy Family has come full circle. Once again, the prophet Isaiah spoke to this lowly estate in chapter 53, verse 2, speaking of the, of the future Messiah. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. So God has, through um, Joseph's incredible help, he has his son exactly where he wants him, 
in Nazareth. And this is the place where Jesus grows up, learns carpentry, and leaves to be baptized by John the Baptist, at at which point his ministry begins. Luke 2.39 says of Mary and Joseph, And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. And the favor of God was upon him. I see this as Joseph being a willing servant in God's execution of his favor on his son. The last account we have of Joseph is in the second chapter of Luke. Uh, Out of 24 chapters, Joseph gets two. And you know the story. It's, it's kind of a fun story to me. Jesus' family has traveled to Jerusalem for the annual feast of the Passover. The, they think he's about 12. And in such an understandable way, Jesus gets left behind by his parents. You know, I, I relate. I can recall a number of times when I was in the, Christian, the children's ministry office that parents who had come to church in separate cars, you know, for whatever reasons, left at least one of their children here when the morning was over. I mean, I guess if you're going to lose your child, best to do it in the temple or in the church. God forbid it be Walmart. Uh, But And so we know that by the time Joseph and Mary realized their mistake, I thought he was with you. No, I thought he was with you. Um, And they get back to Jerusalem. They find their boy in the temple, and it's three days later. Oops. Mary is the one who admonishes Jesus while Joseph stands beside her, silent. And Luke tells us that Jesus returned to Nazareth with his family and was submissive submissive to his parents. His parents. This is the last indication that Joseph was in Jesus' life. I absolutely praise God for obedient, competent, courageous Joseph. I learned that the name Joseph means to add. And Joseph, by obedience, played a vital, necessary role in the addition of Jesus Christ into our world. What might Joseph and the true miraculous story of Jesus's first arrival say to us, especially in this strange 2020 year? Well, first and foremost, Joseph shows me that God uses poor, ordinary people like me to help bring about his purposes. People who never get one quotation recorded in the Bible. They don't get a single canticle. 
but they are people who are willing to be faithful, willing to faithfully follow when God has only given us his word in a dream. And to be clear here, his word in a dream that exactly mirrors the word out of the book. We are each and every one of us a potential Joseph in the eyes of God. The nativity story confirms that God does not require well-rehearsed choirs leading us in the singing of our favorite Christmas hymns in a beautiful, fragrant nave, as wonderful as that is. And God does not require beautifully lit up rooms with strings of light full of well-dressed, well-fed people, as lovely as that is. What God does expect of us is to be ready to obey him in the stinky stable when a helpless baby of a teenage girl to whom we are to care for is being born on a pile of hay. Let's pray that this Christmas, as we must scale back the ways we celebrate, both in our church and in our homes, let's pray that it is quiet enough this year, this awful COVID-19 year, that we can hear the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those whom he is well pleased. Let's pray, let's pray that it is dark enough this year that we can actually see God's great shining light in our darkness. Let's pray that we are made faithful like Joseph. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at Advent.